Hi, and welcome. Today I'm talking with Professor Howard Williams. He is a professor of archaeology with an interest in medieval archaeology and death rituals, among other topics. And he's currently at the University of Chester in the UK. I love interviewing scholars, students, academics, amateurs, and many more. Their love for the topic makes it that much more interesting. As you know, not all the topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie, I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. And now it's time to dig into some history, eh? So today I'm talking with Professor Williams, and I was excited all week about this topic. So thank you so much, Professor Williams, for coming on the show. Nice to be here. I guess first off, we can say, you know, what is the topic? We might have seen it in the title, but it'd be great if you can present it for us. Okay, well, I wanted to talk to you about a link to my latest edited collection of publication, a book um, called Digging into the Dark Ages, and it's really early medieval public archaeologies. So the challenges and the parameters of how we connect our research from the early Middle Ages to various publics today. And this is a, a really rich and varied topic that connects different disciplines and it has many challenges to it. And at one level, no one really tackles it as an expert. and There's no expert in early medieval public archaeology. And on another flip side, Everyone feels they're an expert in this. <laughs> so everyone feels they've got an investment in it, whether they've watched the TV show Vikings or um, they've been to a, a, a Jorvik Heritage Centre or they've been to Lindisfarne or wherever, it's, whether it's from going to real world places or it's actually from popular representations. Everyone's got an opinion about it. So it's, it's a fun topic in many ways. Excellent. That actually is very fun. And I'm sure a lot of people have been to different museums, whether it be Vikings or something else. So this is a great place to start. Yeah. How did you get interested in this topic? What led you to be here today? Well, absolutely. I mean, I'm a professor of archaeology at the University of Chester, and I've been teaching archaeology in different universities and researching archaeology in those same positions for about 21 years now. But before that, I was a student, of course. And um, really, it was as an undergraduate that I started getting interested in the early Middle Ages and the period AD 400 to 1100, roughly speaking, in Britain, in Northwest Europe, in Scandinavia. But if I was going to honestly tell you about where all this came from, why did I become interested in the early Middle Ages? I'd have to go way back to early childhood. But uh, one example for you is that before I even went to university, I was volunteering on archaeological excavations. And my first excavation, age 16, was at Roxeter Roman City in Shropshire, which isn't far from where I live and work now in Chester. And Roxeter, Viriconium, is a major Roman city. It's one of the few Roman cities that was not covered later on by a medieval town. Or um, it was it's one of these Roman cities that was abandoned. And when a successor town developed, it developed nearby, but elsewhere. So you may have heard of Silchester uh, down in Hampshire and uh, the Saxon town that developed 
um, nearby at Reading is quite a way away. And the same happened at Roxeter. So Roxeter was abandoned in the late 4th, early 5th century, or there's debate about that. And that's one of the reasons I was interested. And uh, Shrewsbury uh, down the road developed in the 10th, 11th centuries. And so when I was digging there as a student with the very famous field archaeologist, Philip Barker, and another famous educationalist in archaeology, Mike Corbishley, and also the uh, early medieval archaeologist, Roger White. And I was 16 and we were digging Roman archaeology. So first to fifth, fourth century archaeology, but always the question, looking at these ruins that had survived from the Roman era right the way through to the 19th century, almost untouched, unexcavated, was, you know, what happened? What created this huge gap? Why didn't that Roman city persist? And so age 16, digging, learning the techniques of archaeology, I was immediately introduced by some of the leading educationalists and researchers into um, this question about what happened to Rome and what replaced it. What about the societies of what we had traditionally called the Dark Ages? But also, one of the things that we talked about was how do we tell the public about this? And even in that first dig, age 16, I was aware that we had open days. We were on an open English heritage site where paid visitors were coming around looking at our dig. And I was aware from square one before I'd even gone to university that all archaeology has a public engagement element. You can call it public archaeology, public history, whatever you want to call it. But it's about the physical remains, whether it's buildings, artefacts, whatever. And it's about telling the story. Now, it can be when a dig is going on. It can be about going into schools. It can be about museums. It can be about all these different aspects. And uh, the Rox English Heritage Roxeter site has a long established you know, um, ruins you can walk around. We were digging in the ruins that had been cleared in the 19th and early 20th century. And also there's a museum. There. There's a small little museum with some of the finds from some of the famous excavations in decades past. So from day one, I realised if I was going to study archaeology, I was already aware that everything we do is in the public gaze. And, and there are many different publics, from school kids to retired people, people of different ethnic backgrounds, visitors from around the world, as well as local communities. We can't just tell the same story to everyone. We have to think about what we say on TV. We have to think about what we have to say um, in our publications. Everything is public in some way. Then I'll tell you another one. Before I even went to university, my second dig, well, was it second or third? I never was my second dig, was at Sutton Hoo. Listeners might have heard of uh, Sutton Hoo in Suffolk uh, because it's now a major national trust site where you can go to a major exhibition and walk around the burial mounds that have been argued to be the burial uh, site of the early Anglo-Saxon kings of East Anglia, the earliest East Anglian monarchs. And these burial mounds were excavated famously in 1938 and 1939. And in the British Museum, you can go and see what's often called the Sutton Hoo treasure. See uh, grave goods from a burial chamber interred in the early 7th century in the centre of a seagoing vessel that was hauled up from the river and put under a burial mound. And we, were, I was digging there in one of the most famous excavations of the late 20th century as a kid. So I was there aged, I think it was still 18, uh, no, still 17, I think, um, digging at Sutton Hoo when there were finding some of these amazing discoveries um, in the well the third major campaign of excavations at Sutton Hoo. So Roxeter and Sutton Hoo together I suppose 
um, with their, the, the characters I was uh, working with gave me that sense that this is really important, not only what we're digging up and what we're researching, but how we communicate this. Because Sutton Hoo's director, Professor Martin Carver, now retired, but uh, uh, an eminent archaeologist, he was always central to what he was talking about. He did these wonderful TV shows that you can still find on the BBC Archive Chronicle, where he took visitors around. He, he was eloquent. He was clear. He told a fantastic story about the discoveries of his excavations. And so I suppose that's to give you the background that all archaeology we do in the early Middle Ages captivates people. And it's long been a, a challenge for us of how do we tell these stories um, and how do we do so avoiding the cliches? And how do we do so and explain the complexity and the richness of these centuries from the 5th to the 11th centuries that are so often characterised in terms of barbarian, savagery, violence, or indeed other cliches. And the other cliche being the origins of Christianity and an ultra spiritual people who are sitting around praying all day. There's lots of cliches that we managed to pack into the, the early Middle Ages that we have to we have to somehow engage with, but also challenge as we move forward. And that happens in the field. It happens in museums. It happens on TV. It happens in, in the now in the digital era. It happens on social media. So I suppose that's my introduction. <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's a really great way to explain how you got involved. I mean, you're involved in so many different things. So. And so when I've been I've become a researcher and I've been developing my own project, I've always had sort of my eye in two directions. So sort of one, what can we learn about the early Middle Ages? And secondly, trying to think about how do we critique, how do we improve on the ways in which we deal with popular misconceptions, uh, political appropriations of the period, uh, racist and perhaps particular religious takes on the period that, that may be exclusory or um, actually may feed into modern um, narratives that are you know, deeply problematic and, and deeply dangerous, actually, in some cases. And always that's been in the back of my mind. But I suppose what's really important for me is it's taken me 21 years and it took a student conference to give me the confidence to actually produce a book on this subject to actually bring together my students and leading experts to actually pull together what we think is going on in digging into the dark ages digging into the early medieval period and what how do we tell the stories in new ways and how do we deal with some of those stereotypes and uh, some of them incredibly dangerous uh, narratives that uh, particular white supremacist groups like to fantasize about this period as a time of pure white european origin myth uh, whether it's for the english or the uh, swedes or it's uh, whoever it, it feeds into a particular story of wasn't it great back in those days when there was no immigrants well apart from the fact that the period in many ways characterized about by immigration you know there's all these um challenges we face yet no one's actually pulled out a book before now before like two months ago actually looking at the ways we do this um and we haven't got all the answers but at least we've set up our stall of introducing this as a challenge and and, and so i'm really proud of this book because it's been the culmination of a long a long development for me from being before when I was a student, um, right the way through my student days and then my days as a lecturer of teaching this to students in classroom. But now I've finally participated in producing an edited collection that allows people to read up on this. It's so interesting because it seems as though in the recent years, interdisciplinarity in general has just blown up. You know, we used to uh, in school, for example, you learn about physics or chemistry or biology. It's very rare that you see things together, you know, 20 years ago. But these days, the interdisciplinarity aspect has really opened us to different lines of questioning, perhaps. I think so. I think so. And I think um, our book is 
overtly about archaeology because I must say in the broader span of medieval studies, um, there is still, while people do herald interdisciplinarity and do talk in interdisciplinary terms, often the interdisciplinary nature of medieval studies is quite exclusively literary, linguistic and historical. And put, talking to historians for some literary scholars is a major step. But they forget about archaeology even to this day. It's good for book covers and it's good for occasionally um, pulling out an image for use on social media and going, hey, look, isn't this a really cool object? But they don't have the theoretical the methodological apparatus to interpret those objects. So, our, so while I agree with you, we're now in a very rich interdisciplinary world. It's quite shocking still, uh, Rosie, when I see supposedly established academics showing a blissful unawareness of archaeology, not only its, its theories, methods and practices, but also its public engagements. So I've had scholars t say to me in utter sincerity quite recently, oh, wouldn't it be good if we were able to engage people in uh, excavations? And I'm just sort of going head in hands. Have you read anything about the last 50 years of archaeological research and the many different TV programs, museums, many different field projects that have involved communities and involved local people and involved uh, you know, visitors? This is not new stuff. And yet we haven't. Part of the failing is, is showing that material evidence is problematic, can tell all manner of dangerous and odd stories, and we have to harness that. That's why I think, it, I sometimes feel like we're reinventing the wheel with some of this. And, you know, we've had this knowledge, we've had this expertise, and archaeologists have been in the leading medieval studies in this for over 50 years now. And yet, we often end up regressing back to a very, should we say, juvenile understanding of archaeological theory and method. And so I hope this book, Yes, it does have interdisciplinary debates. It does involve specialists from other uh, subject areas. We have historians in the book. We have literary and linguistic scholars in the book. But it does really try to push the, the importance of heritage sites and museums and archaeological collections for telling new stories and revealing those new discoveries. So, yes, I suppose I'm agreeing with you. We're in a really rich interdisciplinary terrain. But when it comes to public engagement, people do tend to forget about archaeology uh, because they're not trained in it and they may not actually understand both the power and the problems that come with the material record, be it structures, be it mounds, be it uh, stone sculpture, be it uh, fragments of glass and pottery. Absolutely. Yes, the heritage sites are vital to keep, you know, the interest in uh, I don't even yeah. know how to say this, but yeah, to keep people engaged. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And would you mind if we actually start um, with the history of early medieval archaeology? Because you've mentioned it, archaeology has been happening for a long time. But what about, you know, start at the beginning? How did it begin? Well, I mean, at one level, it begins in the early Middle Ages itself, when um, the cult of saints involved, you need to dig up your local Roman cemetery and find some bones that you can call you can claim are your your saint who was martyred in the third century. So actually digging up old sites and in being interested in old remains goes back to the Middle Ages. We wouldn't call it archaeology. You wouldn't even call it antiquarianism. And then there's a long story about the search for the early medieval roots of European nations, which we can see beginning in the 16th and 17th centuries with antiquarians and where archaeological finds and sites get to be part of the story. 
But really, I suppose the shorthand is the very end of the 18th and early 19th century, where at least in the British Isles or these islands or the Anglo-Celtic archipelago, I've got to be sensitive on that point, the islands off the coast of Europe, um, you know, Britain and Ireland um, start to try to form nationalist narratives about the early Middle Ages. And it was a very eclectic story. And it really depends on where you're talking about what bits of evidence get used. But it's really in that late 18th, early 19th century, where we start to see a real coherent attempt to use the material record to not only fill in gaps in a very already recognised fragmentary historical record, but really to tell fresh stories. I work mainly on, in terms of the history of archaeology, I've worked mainly on the origins of England as a conception and an idea. And actually, the idea was very much always in the late 18th century and early 19th century, antiquarians trying to create an English version of a narrative for origins that would perhaps uh, counter a French one or an Irish one. And it was always relational, an attempt to, well, look, they're finding these sites. They've got those wonderful Celtic crosses. And, you know, we've got to find something that is as good. And we find that particularly in the 1840s and 50s, in the early Victorian era, archaeologists are are suddenly realising that the rubbish sources we have for the 5th, 6th centuries, for the origins of the English, we can actually dig up, furnish graves, and they started to attribute them to the 5th, 6th centuries rather than seeing them as Roman. And they were realising that these graves can start to tell us about the origins of the English. And this was always, from day one, a very racialized understanding of, of the English as an offshoot of a Teutonic race. So it was a racialising sense that people didn't believe in an English race as such, but as a part of a broader Germanic and particularly the word Teutonic world um, conception. And that idea was really popular for a time in the early Victorian age. It was a real reaction to the um, sort of imperial Rome obsession with Rome, Greece, Etruscan remains, Egyptian remains that the British Museum had been fostering, that Britain should be just stealing everyone else's treasures and bringing them back to Britain. We should actually be looking at the island's history. And this was a time when Britain was, this was leading up to the Crimean War. This was um, when Britain was, you know, had a half German monarch and married to a German on the throne. This was a time when the Germanophile sentiment was at its height. And of course, things went a bit awry with that in the later Victorian era and into the 20th century. But that's another story. But in that period, you know, the Russians and the French were the bad guys. The German states, because there was no Germany yet, the German states were the ones we had an affinity with, both in terms of royal and cultural connections. Therefore, a lot of antiquarians were really looking uh, for the first time in detail at archaeological evidence for furnished graves to sort of fill in that story. And yeah, it's from a modern perspective, there's some really disturbing and interesting stuff done then. And we've inherited a lot of that legacy of the, the same ways that uh, um, we talk about these graves and the labels we use and some of the writings. And uh, one of the things I've been writing about over the last 20 years is challenging that and uh, some of that inheritance of uh, how we talk about Anglo-Saxon graves and uh, their contents and uh, perhaps suggest other narratives for how we interpret those remains. But that's just one case study for you of how we very much still in the in the shadow of the late 18th and 19th century and the way we study the early Middle Ages, the fact that people still refer to it in the press as the Dark Ages and there's still those sort of stereotypes going around. And we often rely in our Hollywood portrayals very much is coming straight from 19th century 
perceptions rather than anything that we're doing now in terms of core research. And so that is, as again, there's another wheel that keeps reinventing itself. We're constantly having to sort of fight, sort of a challenge some of those misconceptions. So part of the problem is we're still in the shadow of the 19th century. Yes. So it sounds like there were some either some debates or some controversies. You know, did that happen closer to that time or do we have some debates and controversies going on right now? Actually, even in the 19th century, people were debating what these early Anglo-Saxon graves meant and how we should interpret them. And actually, scholars seem to have a whole variety of different approaches. Some recent commentaries on that seem to have missed that point, that actually there's a whole host of different stories being told about those remains. And a lot of the story is about, well, how much was their British survival? How much was their immigration from across the North Sea? And who were the English? You know, that's one of the key points. What was their paganism? In the 5th, 6th century, this is before Christian conversion, um, what what kind of beliefs did they have? And can archaeology tell us? So those are controversies that have been raging since the 19th century, and we're still still arguing about that. And then we're having the whole debate about how the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms formed in the 7th century and the early 8th centuries, how these kingdoms developed and their significance. And again, those were issues touched on in the 19th century, and we're still debating them. And then, of course, when we get to the ninth century and the Viking Age, and we're still having the debates about the started in the 19th century about the scale, significance and character of Viking raiding, trading and settlement. And finally, we have another big area that has been rocking around since the 18th and 19th century. How much of a hiatus or should we say a shift uh, or dramatic transformation was the Norman conquest of England in 1066? So from the beginning of the era, from the end of Rome and the beginning of Anglo-Saxon migrations, through Christian conversion and kingdom formation, the Vikings, right up to the Norman intervention, we're still, a lot of our work is still challenging and debating the significance and what the archaeological evidence tells us about those big events. And what I would like to say that's more positive, though, is often in addition to those big sort of cheesy stayed questions, we are trying to use archaeological evidence to tell a whole range of new and fresh stories about society, economy, ideology, religion, politics, um, identity, not simply in such stark and simple terms of 1066, what was that all about? Or the end of Rome, what happened next in a very stark, simple way. We can tell a lot of different local regional stories and as well as big national and international ones from our material. So things have moved on, Rosie, but we are still stuck with some of those big questions that were debated in the 19th century and no one had an answer then. And we're still debating them today with new, fresh evidence. Sure, with new perspectives and disciplines. Absolutely. But we're still going over that material. And, you know, the debate seems pretty lively. So I guess my next question would be, why is early medieval archaeology still popular? You know, haven't those questions been answered? It doesn't seem like it, but... (laughs) No, it doesn't. I I suppose, well, it's like any period of the human past... um... There's a whole question about the scales and and the, the questions one likes to ask. I suppose why the early Middle Ages matters to people in many ways, it shouldn't matter at all, but it does. And I think what people are fascinated with is the fact that it is a period of multiple sequential transformations that shape the world we live in today. 
and it's a period where we see the end of a the Roman Empire at its height, stretching from the Near East with trade links to India and indirectly with China, right up to Hadrian's Wall with contacts with Ireland uh, that are still under recognised, but they were there. You know, they had in contacts and trade links right up into Scandinavia. That global system, if you like, it didn't stretch globally in the way we understand the globe, but it was a global system. The end of that global system and what comes next still fascinates people. There are that people are interested in in the early Middle Ages for a whole host of interconnected reasons to do with this is the time when we think that modern nation states emerged. In many ways, it didn't, but we like to think it was. So France, Germany, England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, the components that we invest identities in today, we think came from this period. Our religion for many uh, Christians uh, the early Middle Ages is a period of, of great interest as a time when uh, the Christian faith spread and developed. And also for Muslims, too, <laughs> it, it has the same draw in terms of religious and political and ethnic terms and linguistic terms. There's a whole host of reasons why people today are interested. And when we add to the mix ancestry research and family tree research, people are interested in those early medieval origins from that angle, too. So I think it's about origins. Now, human societies go way, way back, you know, millions of years, but we like to see the early Middle Ages as a new start. And that's one of the challenges we have for the period, because it wasn't really a new start, but it's one of the things that draws people in. And then within that, there's the Vikings, there's the Saxons, there's the, the Picts, there's individual sort of groupings or regions that have a particular appeal and particular fascination, have their own set of questions that people are, are, are intrigued about and fascinated with. Um, the ethnic terms are a challenge for us because often they mean very little and they weren't even used in the period, <laughs> but they are terms that uh, people will know about and we can use to uh, introduce them to people. So I hear people talk about Viking culture as if we know there was a Viking culture and I can reprimand them for a, an hour long lecture about or many hours lectures about why there was no such thing as a single Viking culture. But, you know, it's a shorthand, isn't it? People, have, you know, if you're talking about the Vikings, people go, oh, you know, if I just said ninth to 11th century in central and southern Scandinavia and their interactions with other countries and regions, you'd kind of already be asleep by the time I finish saying it. So Vikings is a way in, isn't it? And I'm not going to get very far on a, on a tweet or a, a TikTok video post or a, or a TV show if I spend all of my allocated 30 seconds saying saying that sentence rather than Vikings. So I think there, is, there is a genuine passion and interest in some of those periods because of the labels we use and some of the icons we use. Now, we can talk about the fact that there's many of them are, are not grounded in historical and archaeological fact, but we still have them there and they're often a useful way to draw people in. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think, like it or not, we've got a laugh job, but we have a really, this period people love. They love it. And they don't love it all, but some people try to claim because they're all neo-pagans and all Christians. You mentioned the, the pagan issue. A lot of people are into the early Middle Ages because of imagined understandings of early medieval paganism, the Norse mythology and so on. So there's a host of religious, spiritual, ethnic, nationalist issues we deal with. And many of them we need to unpack and challenge, but they're there and we have to work with them. We can just spend our time lecturing people about how it's all wrong. But at the end of the day, we've got to communicate with people about this period and use some of the terms that people might have heard of. <laughs> so um, and they'll be picking up from their popular media. And that's what the book is very much about, really. 
Yeah, it does seem as though popular perception is very important when you're talking about any topic. If you're saying the Celts and you start explaining, you know, the, all the background, you're going to lose people. <laughs> yeah, yes. And uh, some terms go in and out of favour. So I, I grew up uh, being taught, well, grew up, I mean, I was a student at the University of Sheffield and I was taught the Celts about the pre-Roman Iron Age uh, by John Collis, Professor John Collis, one of my heroes. I went on excavations with him and he just he, he is a great critic of using the term Celt at all. And uh, many agree with him. And, and I grew up as a, intellectually as an undergraduate student. And we don't talk about the Celts. And then, of course, I encountered that lots of other scholars have very different views on the Celts and what that means. And, you know, there's no single authoritative answer on these questions. But we're all aware we're dealing with these terms that have many different associations and problems with them. Uh, and the same goes for the Vikings, the Anglo-Saxons, the Picts and so on. So I've been coming into some quite, uh, shall we say, heated discussions of late with some of my uh, particularly medieval literary scholars who don't seem to have much of a grounding in the background of the, the potential and the power of these terms, as well as some of the more you know, problematic aspects to them, because uh, I come down on the side of arguing that these terms are deeply troublesome and uh, they are appropriated and misused, but they are the things that many people love and many people get the fascination in. For example, I can give you another hour or two lecture about why there was no King Arthur, but, you know, many people are fascinated in the fifth and early sixth centuries because of the Arthurian stories they've watched on TV or read in books. And that that world after Rome facing the Saxons as an enemy, it captures the imagination. And rather than constantly shouting about why that's wrong, we should be critiquing it and also engaging people with it. Because there's so much fun that we can fun information that we can really have. And it's not about, you know, shouting people down. It's about taking them from a story that may be a bit wrong and saying, hey, guys, we can show you a better story and one that's actually grounded in the evidence. Why don't you come with me? <laughs> and that is the way you get students interested. And that's the way that you get the public interested, not by just shouting at them about why everything they've learned is completely and utterly wrong. So you did mention that some people called it the Dark Ages. How did that come about? Okay, well, the Dark Ages means different things to different people, and it always has. It comes out from the understanding that after Rome, there was a period where the Enlightenment, the knowledge of Rome was lost. But also the practical fact is we have very few historical documents from the period. Some scholars still see that as the barometer in which we should evaluate uh, a period of time and still argue that a dark age is, is an appropriate term, a period where we have very little historical information. But we've long realised that because archaeology and other disciplines give us so many other routes of information, from pollen evidence to uh, excavations of uh, funerary monuments, settlements, it's a completely ridiculous term. And yet people know about it and hear about it. And uh, so we actually, it was really funny, actually, we called the book Digging Into the Dark Ages, obviously, to make a point about the fact that the Dark Ages has been a focus of recent controversy again, because English heritage at Tintagel, uh, one of our most famous early medieval sites, as well as having a later castle at Tintagel in Cornwall, there is a, a Dark Age site, a 5th to 7th century AD or CE uh, site where we can uh, see early medieval buildings, 5th to 7th century buildings. And it's it, they've relabeled for visitors and called them the Dark Age buildings. And this is the Dark Age Tintagel. And people went absolutely ballistic. Historians went crazy. Archaeologists went crazy. Went, no, you can't call it that. And I also joined in because I thought it was a bit, it was a bit rubbish. But then also I realised the term has a utility for some because it does, it means something different. If you, sort, if you tell some people the Middle Ages, they think knights, castles, abbeys, you know, they're thinking 13th, 14th, early 15th centuries. 
at least at the very basic least dark ages has a power to remind people we're talking about the fifth to 11th centuries but i don't use it i've never used it it's long out of fashion but i used it on the cover of this book to make a point that we're digging into the very the very concepts and terms of the period so i wasn't using it in a i wasn't trying to suggest call the period the dark ages it's long uh, out of date but um, I used it in the context of the book because this was about how we communicate with the public. And so I thought um, that would be obvious. But it's amazing how people, some people went ballistic at even the title of my book, <laughs> thinking I had no understanding that the book, the Dark Ages might not be the best term. And I was trying to say, well, that's the whole point. The whole point is about how we engage publics. So calling it digging into, you know, thinking through the Dark Ages, digging into in a metaphorical sense, not as well as digging into the material, was trying to get people to think about how do we communicate this period. And the book has in it two chapters that actually deal with Tintagel and how we interpret it. So anyway, you know, yes, Dark Ages is a term that is very unhelpful. <laughs> it suggests we have very little evidence from a period where we actually have vast amounts of evidence for. Um, and uh, we prefer to use early Middle Ages for the 5th to 11th centuries. But it's there in popular use. And some, some visitor sites still use Dark Age as a term. Yeah, so you've mentioned a few museum sites, but uh, can you give a, other examples of, you know, the Dark Ages or yeah. the early medieval sites that you have? Well, there's many a, a site that's later and earlier, which has uh, early medieval phases to it. So when you go to any historic city in the island of Britain, you will be encountering sites that have many later layers and early medieval ones too. A good example is the one I study and teach in, uh, Chester. Chester was a Roman city, and we know it became an Anglo-Saxon birth established by Ethelfled, uh, the Lady of the Mercians, who is uh, one of the fictional characters in The Last Kingdom, if you've caught, anyone's caught that, uh, the TV show. Ethelfled, the daughter of Alfred the Great, and she found at Chester a burr at the very beginning of the 10th century. And the burr is a fortified town, a uh, trading site and a mint uh, for coinage, administration, and a military site as well for controlling the region. So my first point would be, actually, a large part of the British landscape has early medieval activity in it that we can encounter. But it's actually very few sites where you can actually get up close and see, you know, um, traces. Uh, there's no equivalent for the early Middle Ages as there is of ruined monasteries, and ruined castles of the late Middle Ages. Lindisfarne, for example, the holy island off the east coast of Northumberland, one of the first Christian sites of the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Northumbria. And there's the ruins of a late medieval priory there. But actually, all of the archaeology that has been found there and is keeps being found there, there's ongoing work being done there by Professor David Petz of Durham University. You know, you can't see it on the ground. There's no ruins. People are mainly building in, in wood. So actually, it's very difficult to show you in a heritage site but um, there are many where you can see bits of it Tintagel's one Sutton Hoo's another uh, Westow is a wonderful site in Suffolk because there you have an Anglo-Saxon village they dug the site they dug the, the traces of wooden buildings and they've subsequently opened a museum there where you can see the artifacts that were found but also on the site where they've dug the buildings they've reconstructed timber buildings as experiments, we don't know exactly how they look, but by building them, we've learned a great deal about the technology required to build a, an early medieval structure. So that's another example for you. Uh, so there's lots of potential sites you could go to and I could tell you there's an early medieval traces, but there, there's nothing to see on the surface, on the ground, and maybe a few artefacts in museums. 
And that's one of the challenges for us. And that's why in the popular imagination, it still seems like a dark age because we know so much about it. But there's no equivalent to a late medieval ruin to show people um, what it looked like. You mentioned sort of, again, the Dark Ages or the early medieval um, in popular culture. So in entertainment and in art currently, do you have yeah. anything you can add or share with us with that? Yeah. So, I mean, give you a good example. In the book, we, we have a number of commentators take to task some of the popular perceptions. And we are in a very blessed, you could say, blessed with a scare quotes, maybe, <laughs> uh, but a blessed position at the moment is that the early Middle Ages in popular culture is taking a, a real, it's really popular. It's really popular. This comes at a price, as well as the far-right extremists finding it very popular. Um, and that is the challenge. But we also have to bear in mind that these big TV shows are being produced featuring the early Middle Ages. And this has been trundling on for about 15 years now. There's been Arthurian films. Um, but now we're in a really in the last six, seven years, we've had the TV show Vikings and we have the parallel TV show The Last Kingdom. Now, Vikings for me is fascinating. Michael Hurst created show. Um, it's now at the ending its sixth season. They're going to have the part two of the sixth season is going to be wrapping up. And I found that very interesting to watch and to comment on its archaeological underpinnings or not. <laughs> and The Last Kingdom, which is uh, inspired by the Bernard Cornwall novels and uh, takes the story. Both uh, fictional shows are based in the ninth century and, and a, a port to show in different degrees of accuracy, a sort of a fictionalised version, a dramatisation of some quasi-historical individuals and their activities. And, and they're great fun and they're widely watched and they're amazing value as an introduction to a new generation or two generations in a TV world and a Netflix generation of the early Middle Ages. But that comes as a whole series of problems with these TV shows. The stereotypes have moved on. Uh, from some of the perhaps more established stereotypes of the Anglo-Saxons, Franks and um, Vikings. And yet some amazing persistence can be exhibits itself. There's some amazing ongoing cliches and, and stereotypes in these TV shows. I've written extensively on my own WordPress blog, uh, Archeodeath, about uh, Vikings and the Last Kingdom. So 70, 80 blog posts now, I think, because they contain so many nuggets of archaeological information that have inspired them, inspired the storyline. And yet also there's some deeply worrying uh, cliches in these shows that uh, people love, uh, but we perhaps aren't really that rooted in the historical and archaeological evidence that we have. And it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge for us, therefore, as academics. So it's a, it's a great time to be doing the early Middle Ages, but it's also a challenging time, not only because of extremist appropriations, uh, but also because uh, people are getting some very bizarre versions of the early Middle Ages in these TV shows. Yes, at least they don't have uh, horn helmets. So, you know, there's a tick on the right. Well, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have to tell you because I have watched season six, part one of Vikings, and they do almost, I think, deliberately to trigger us. They have put in a guy with a horn helmet. <laughs> I haven't blogged about this yet. And I have to say the plot by the season six of Vikings, even my very patient and uh, <laughs> benign uh, approach to the show in which I've I've suffered long and hard to keep going with it is pushed to the limit with some aspects uh, but this guy this this character i don't want to ruin the plot for any listeners who haven't seen i would say it is great fun i enjoy it but when they, they put this guy with his horn helmet i went oh no they haven't and it's really funny and it's, it's almost like a 
I don't know if someone was somehow in the set designers was deliberately saying, let's see if we can really knock off the academics. But it was it was funny and so bad it makes me cry. Um, but uh, it's it's good. It's fun. So um, yes, I'm afraid to walk it to you. But yes, they finally, after five seasons of being horned helmet free, they do drop a horned helmet into season six. <laughs> Yeah. Um, actually, a friend of mine was watching Norseman. I've heard it's yes. really funny. I haven't watched it, though. Oh, you should watch it. Two seasons. Yes. And it's a, a lovely mixture of some of it's commenting as I'm set in the Viking age, but talking about modern society and comedy. But some of it is direct parody of uh, some of the debates and issues to do with the portrayal of the early Middle Ages. My favourite scene from Norseman is, uh, without wishing to ruin the plot or ruin the joke, is when they try and do a funeral. Obviously, my interest is in funerary archaeology. And the thing I love about Vikings particularly is they have put a lot of funerary scenes inspired by saga literature, inspired by archaeological evidence into the show. And a lot of it's wrong or at least problematic or difficult to verify. Uh, and some of it is, is atrocious, but some of it is also really interesting really again i won't plot spoil but when one of the main characters dies in season six of vikings and the funeral that they give this individual is just beyond anything i mean it's like 29 i think 30 minutes of a tv episode given over to a funeral i mean how has it ever happened before in a tv show 30 minutes of a funeral it's amazing and it's not accurate in any sense it's a it's a spin it's an imaginary event with hilariously implausible elements to it and yet this is really a vivid portrayal of a ninth century society that is going to stick with people and, and inspire people and so I, I love these shows and i hate them but norseman does this too as a parody and has has a boat uh, being pushed out onto a fjord to be set alight, which is something we have no verified evidence actually ever happened in the early Middle Ages. But anyway, that, that point aside, and it, it's made into a very, very amusing comedy scene. So I, I love Norseman. Heard very good things about it too. <laughs> but getting back, to, in terms of what we do with this popular culture references, I suppose I, my point I'll just reiterate is that one thing is we just, some scholars have told me, oh, just don't watch it, don't engage with it, don't but I don't. I teach with it. I use screenshots in my teaching. I deal with the issues because this is the way we can deal with some of the misconceptions. This is the way we can take to task these these misunderstandings because people will be taking some of this. TV audiences aren't completely uncritical and stupid. They know they're being shown a fiction, but they will internalise some of the narratives and some of the features of these uh, these worlds that they're presented with. And I think that's where we can if we don't know what those worlds are showing us, <laughs> particularly their archaeological, their material dimensions, how they're showing the hall, how they're showing craft working, how they're showing ship uses, build, you know, building and, and, and seafaring. If, if we don't understand how they're showing face paint and tattooing, how they're showing warrior women and battle scenes. If we're not aware of what these TV shows are trying to show us, how as academics can we understand what the public will appreciate of our stories will be their cues when taking forward our narratives and we'll be just so we need to be aware of these shows and also critically engage with them not just simply to point our fingers and shout that they've done it wrong but to really use them as entry points for new audiences because many people have watched vikings but they'll never have picked up a book on the vikings and that's the point Yes, absolutely. The engagement is very important because they won't learn, you know, we won't be able to learn about it unless 
somebody shows it to us <laughs> at that point. Yeah. And there's many an academic I know has started off in interest in the early Middle Ages because they watched a few Arthurian films or watch read a few books. They don't now believe any of that is is the way things were in the early Middle Ages, but it was their entry point. It was their inspiration. Other people admit to me that it was Lord of the Rings and the fictional world inspired by Norse mythology and Celtic mythology of Middle Earth that inspired them to get interested in the early Middle Ages. This doesn't mean that they interpret uh, the early medieval past as uh, Middle Earth, but that they that was their entry point. That was the thing that sparked their imagination. And who am I to tell people that's wrong? Who am I to dictate that that is not the way they should, you know, starting their journey into history? And uh, and I think that's only a positive thing if we can capture new audiences and 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 show them why these shows are have their issues and their their problems, but also show how they they really are an important avenue. And I know some of my peers are have been uh, historical consultants on these shows, and I don't. I don't think they'll always be happy with some of my judgments on their advice, <laughs> uh, but uh, but I think that the, we are having an impact on this uh, broader insights. I'll give you another example from the book. I, I've been doing an interview with Dr. Jackson Crawford, who has a wonderful YouTube channel. His specialism isn't archaeology. It's Old Norse literature and linguistics, really. Uh, but he uh, does, has a very popular, I think he's got over 100,000 viewers on YouTube now. And he does very academic videos, but people watch them in their thousands. And he also has been a bit of a well-known personality. And so he gets approached by Hollywood on multiple occasions and by video game designers uh, to consult on the portrayal of the Viking Age. And the most controversial and recent one of these, which I know, I don't know how much public it is of who was consulted on it, but of course, Assassin's Creed Valhalla is the latest version of where literally millions of people, or at least hundreds of thousands of people, will be consuming a fictional Viking Age. And uh, we can either ignore this and say, oh, that's just silly video games, or we can engage with it. And I can tell you that they have consulted uh, historical and um, linguistic and archaeological experts on that representation. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying uh, they took the advice, but it's happening. There is a dialogue here with entertainment industry and archaeology and history of the early Middle Ages. And we can make a difference. We can curtail some of the more extreme and ridiculous portrayals if we work and show we're open to discussion rather than just shouting about how everyone's wrong. Yes, absolutely. I'm a big fan of Dr. Crawford too. I've been watching his videos a long time. Yeah. I was wondering too, so we've talked sort of the modern perception, if you will. Do we know where the future's headed? Do we know what we can look forward to? Well, uh, it's a challenge, isn't it? Because um, in many ways, you can be very negative about it and say that no matter how much we do in public engagement with history and archaeology from the early Middle Ages, there's so much misinformation out there and there's so many more mechanisms by which, should we say, fake pseudo-archaeology fake archaeology is perpetuated um, via social media, that we're, we're never going to win. You, you can say we should give up. We should just stop using any of these terms. We should stop engaging. We should stop trying to fight the fight. We should stop trying to communicate about our archaeological sites. We should just give it up to the ethno-nationalists and the far-right lunatics, and we should just let them have their playground and uh, let them have their little game of talking about how they're all they're, they got a DNA test back and they're 10% Viking and that's why they're superior or whatever fantasies they have. And we can, we can indulge, we can just let that happen. And we can, we can say, no, there's no point. Or I think for the future, we have to 
see the book that I've just produced as the start of something bigger. There's been a well-established, I should say, a, you know, subdisciplines or interdisciplinary study of medievalism and reception studies across a range of different disciplines. But archaeology has not really seen public archaeology as a field that looks at both how we engage publics, but also how we critique political discourses, popular perceptions, um, everything from TV shows to museum display, right? And that broader framework. We've always seemed to see this as a bit fluffy and on the edges. And yeah, that contradicts everything I've learned over 25, 30 years. It contradicts everything all the leading experts have told me from the people like Professor Rosemary Cramp at Durham, who's now long retired, but was digging Monk Wearmouth and Jarrow in the 70s and had involving local people on every level. We've always done this in early medieval archaeology. And yet somehow when we get through to our publications, it gets a footnote. Almost like, oh, well, that's about the present. And I think partly for the future, one, we need to take public archaeology seriously for the early Middle Ages. You know, if there's one period where it matters most how we tell the stories, it's the early Middle Ages. That's my first point, is we've got to take it more seriously. And we've also got to embrace the digital realm, that we have so much fake news out there, so much pseudo-archaeology out there, and yet we also have powerful tools where we can adapt them. Now, I don't have the answers here, and I don't think it's down to one or two of us alone, but the fact you're doing a podcast on this, you know, I've recently tried to join TikTok and work out how that works as a bizarre uh, video, uh, but millions of people are on it, billions of people on it, some ridiculous number of people are on TikTok now. You know, is there any merit to trying to do bite-sized information in that medium? We can't all do everything, but I think we've got to A, take it seriously, and B, start experimenting with new ways of engagement that don't look like academic research, and yet they are absolutely reaching new audiences and challenging preconceived ideas. A third point is, uh, I've said multiple times, we've got to stop reinventing the wheel and recognise that we haven't suddenly discovered this is a problem. There's long been a passion and an interest in the early Middle Ages, and there's long been people that will take it and use it to political ends in ways that are quite dangerous and disturbing. That's no reason to run away from the period in its terms. That's the very reason we stay in and confront them and challenge them. So in other words, we need to have a little bit more confidence in our expertise and our and our knowledge base and not concede territory to those that would have us give up on this period and just leave it to, to others. And if we did that with human evolution, if we did that with the origins of farming, if we did that with the understanding of the Roman Empire, if we did that with the 19th century, <laughs> if we did that with the study of international slavery, if we decided we were just going to abandon attempting to study it because there are extremists who have insidious views about that topic, then I think we would be it'd be a massive, shocking, collective failing in our responsibility as, as, as researchers. And people would think, what on earth are you doing? And the same applies. I've looked for 25 years. I've been studying and working with people who are interested in the early Middle Ages because of a host of reasons that I don't necessarily agree with. Uh, I've, been, I've taught I've, I've, every year. I do public lectures in front of crowds in which there are people with a range spectrum of political views, where there are neo-pagans, there are Christians, there are people with different faiths, different ethnicities. And I talk about the early Middle Ages. If I start trying to just tell them that one of their approaches is wrong, <laughs> that is not going to engage them. That's not a way you get people over to understand the complexities of the period. 
you engage people with where they're coming from and you take them on a journey from there you don't just shout at them about how it's all it's all pointless or you don't just abandon the territory and so for me it's about not reinventing the wheel trying to experiment with new digital mechanisms being more vocal and being i mean it's a term been banded around in archaeology a lot more archaeology is is not been a good at being public intellectuals we we have you know there's a few big name historians that prance around on tv we've only got a couple we've got neil oliver and alice roberts i mean there's a few others but you know they're great but they're overused why do we need to see their faces all the time and i know I, I may love their faces but i don't want it shouldn't be about them if we're dealing with the early middle ages that we need to be taking the story out there so i think we need to take seriously public archaeology realize we've got expertise in it realize we've been doing public engagement for a long time experiment with new media um, and experiment with new stories and not give up the territory, <laughs> not give up the territory to those that would say we, there's no way we can never possibly salvage the early Middle Ages and the terms and the narratives. These are not owned by us as academics. They're not owned by fringe groups. They're not owned by anybody. The, the stories are out there, the materials out there, and we have a responsibility to tell exciting, engaging and are responsible and informed stories about that evidence, not just to leave it to the pseudo archaeologists. And so it's a combat. I mean, I just I just feel very strongly about this, having produced this book, where there are a range of different views. Um, um, students have really been vocal in coming up with their ideas, or I've worked with one student to take their, her ideas forward. Leading experts have come in on this, but I also know and I have to say this, and I'm happy to say this on a podcast, I know that this book, there were people who wanted to be in my book, but wouldn't, didn't want to be in the book because they didn't want to be seen to be talking about this now because it's become so toxic that some leading scholars have said, oh, I'm a bit too busy. And others have said, actually, I'm a junior scholar. And I know if I appear in this book talking about this subject, if I get one half sentence wrong, I will be splashed on social media and pariahed and my career is over. And I said, I had to concede, this is such a controversial topic, whether it's about the Vikings or the Anglo-Saxons or the Picts or any other group. It's such a controversial area that involves nationalists, involves religious groups, involves ethnic groups. And some people are just scared to address it. And it's so easy just to run away and say, no, let's not do this now then. <laughs> and uh you know i i've always kept an open conversation with anyone who wants to engage with me on this topic and i hate the fact that actually some people are just too scared to tackle this that i think is a for the, i suppose that does relate to the future because if we are going to move forward with dealing with this topic dealing with the public history and archaeology of the early middle ages we've got to accept that we won't all agree and that we'll all have different strategies and approaches of how we communicate fascinating stories whether it's in museums, whether it's on t about TV shows. And I've had leading experts tell me, oh, I hate The Last Kingdom, but I love Vikings, and I love Vikings, and I hate The Last you know, whichever way, you know. Uh, that's fine. We can all disagree. Of course, I, I happen to think some of them are wrong, you know, but, but we're all passionate in the period and about studying past people because they matter. Uh, they matter in themselves because uh, they were once there. They matter to people today. And it's not just about people who see themselves as descendants. There's so much you can learn about the early Middle Ages that has stories to tell us about other cultures, other places. It's not just about the origins of Europe 
and uh, or parts of Europe. And, and so it, it can be inclusive, engaging and fascinating. It's multidisciplinary. And if we can't study this and if people, even some leading experts, wouldn't be in my book <laughs> because they're scared of voicing an opinion on a subject that's controversial, then I think we're not in the right place. So I think one of the things we, we have to do moving forward is, is we have to accept that we're not going to agree with each other on some topics, but we do have a bigger shared aspiration to tell challenging engaging interesting stories about the early medieval past yes that is those are actually are all very good points i think in any discipline you might have controversy and it's important to understand that not everybody will agree so that's a really good point yeah and, and we can use the debates as a focus point of, of really in energizing audiences i've i've long I haven't actually been able to succeed in doing this because it can always be misinterpreted. But I want to have public arguments with people, not because I want to be nasty to people, but I want to. That's a way that people I, I do this with my students. I, set, I, I sometimes lecture from a point of view and I say that's half an hour explaining why I think this. But actually, I don't think that that's another person's view. Here's another view. You know, this is a way of getting people interested. History is about debate. And if we all we give them is anodyne you know, package plastic early Middle Ages and don't show them there are different perspectives and different alternatives to how things might have happened that scholars are debating. We're, we're really insulting the intelligence of broader audiences. And so, yes, absolutely. I think we, we could do a lot more, not necessarily being nasty to each other, but being deliberately setting up the debates about particular issues, whether it's the effect of the Norse settlers on, on Orkney or it, be it about thinking about the, the character and organisation of the church in early medieval Ireland. There's ways we can use debate in a healthy and productive way that isn't about um, being abusive and uh, personally throwing insults. Uh, and I'm talking about scholars here, which is happening a lot. I'm not talking about the, the public. I have a much better dialogues with uh, the public than I seem to have with some of my academic colleagues at the moment. And that's a very dire position to be in, to be honest with you. Uh, and it does show you that, that people do get, I don't know, I perhaps... What, what does it tell us? I suppose it tells us that perhaps the public are perhaps in some ways more open to debate than, than some academics are. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question, actually. <laughs> that is a good look to the future. I appreciate that. That's Those are all really good points to you know think about and ponder in your own discipline. Yeah. Um, and actually, I also had a question. So I had asked you if you had a fun fact and you did give me a fun fact. So would you mind sharing it with us? Yeah, I haven't checked out whether this still plays out, because I, I think it's right. OK, so when I was, uh, I was I was digging as a student back in uh, back in the day, I think it was back in 1991 in uh, Sutton Hoo, we were digging between some of the mounds. We weren't actually digging into a mound, excavating and uh, popped out of the soil a small gold and garnet cloisonne bead. <laughs> And the students digging next to me picked it up and handed it back to me. And I showed it to the supervisor, a guy called Gigi Signorelli. He's an Italian archaeologist. And uh, he's, a, he's a wonderful guy. He, he looked like this is this, almost 30 years ago now. But I remember him very well. He, sort of, he had this very thick Italian accent. And he sort of knelt next in awe. He sort of picked it up. It was like something out of a Hollywood film. He went, oh, what have you got there? You know, and, and I went, uh, so, you know, it looks like a, uh, a golden garnet bead to me. Never have I found such a thing. He said. <laughs> and basically, yeah, so as a student, I found a piece of golden garnet, uh, Closne jewellery, which probably dates to the very end of the 6th, early 7th century AD. 
and we think it was missed in the excavation of a nearby burial mound dug in 1938 by Basil Brown, and it was in the spoil heap. <laughs> so we found, I found it out of context. And so what that means is that I have the very unique claim to, uh, as a student, I found, and probably the only, <laughs> I, I found uh, the only piece of gold at Sutton Hoo since uh, Mound 1 was excavated in 1939. There's bits of guilt and there's bits of other things, but certainly um, I think that's my claim to fame. And it's probably the only claim to ever finding gold. And that's not really important in itself, but it's a funny, it's a fun fact, isn't it? Um, you know, I've, I've done many a dig where we haven't found much at all, <laughs> but uh, in an excavation and, and survey work reveals many things you don't expect. And it often doesn't, uh, doesn't find a treasure in the modern sense. But that for me was a funny moment as a student. That team of excavations, it was just an amazing group of students, some of who are experts in the field now. I remember digging as a student, as a volunteer with other volunteers who are professors of archaeology and, and history now. It was a very fun time to be part of that, that amazing Sutton Hoo excavation. Oh, absolutely. It actually sounds like you uh, you had to go in archaeology and continue on once you found a gold at Sutton Hoo. <laughs> it was definitely rosy. <laughs> Yeah, your path was laid out, that's for sure. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I have a fun question I like to ask, so hopefully you want to answer it. So if you had a time machine, what would be either the person you want to meet or the event you want to see or partake in? You know, wh where would you want to go? And of course, you're safe and the sanitary conditions are good. You know, you're coming back safely. Um, but what would be something that you're really curious or you want to know more about? Well, obviously, if I was going to be honest, I'd want to use the time machine to go to the future to ensure that no one corrects or counters my academic publications. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like a, a terminal. I'll send a terminator in the opposite direction to decimate and eradicate all all historians and archaeologists who may dare at any time in the future to disagree with my research. No, seriously, if I was going to go to the past with a time machine, I I don't know. Um, that's a, I've never been asked that question actually, and I suppose my answer because my mind is on Sutton Who. Um, wouldn't I would actually love I wouldn't like to actually, I'd love to attend if I'm only allowed one I, which funeral would I like to attend at Sutton Hoo do you know I'd like to attend the funeral of Mound 2 at Sutton Hoo not Mound 1 we know a lot about Mound 1 I am um, Martin Carver's excavations dug Mound 2 which is also a ship I pulled over a chamber um, in which a rich we think male gendered weapon burial was deposited. And we know very little about that. So I would like, that's my answer. I'll give you that. I'd like to attend the funeral that resulted in the Mound 2 ship burial at Sutton Hoo. And that's also a good answer, I feel, because it means that some of your readers who may know about Mound 1 will now have, oh, listeners, sorry, readers, listeners, will have to now go away and read up about Mound 2 at Sutton Hoo. So that's my answer. That's great. Yeah, Sun Hu is so fascinating, but yet I, I've never actually delved too far into it. So I'll have to go read into it now. <laughs> no, but that's what, that's what I thought it would be a good, a good response to, you know, something people know about, but they'll have to go and uh, find out more about. And that's in many ways the spirit of what I'm trying to argue with the public archaeology of the early Middle Ages is that, you know, there are things that people are familiar with that we can start them on a course, on a journey, and then we can uh, show them new stuff they may never have learned about. Absolutely. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. I mean, this was just completely different and so interesting. I'm very pleased you said yes.
Oh, thank you. I've, it's been a pleasure. And I wasn't, as we discussed, I, there's so many things we could have done, but I'm so delighted that you allowed me to do this one because this is so much on my mind at the moment with the book just coming out. And uh, I, and I hope people can people can download the book as a as an ebook, so you don't even have to pay for it. You can get the hard copy from Archeopress, but the ebook is downloadable from the Archeopress site, um, Digging into the Dark Ages, Early Medieval Public Archaeologies, edited by Howard Williams and Pauline Clark. And, and you know, it, I hope people sort of find it a useful starting point for thinking in more critical terms about how we tackle the challenges of dealing with the, the early Middle Ages. Absolutely. All that information will be linked in the blog post and the show notes. So, Oh, fantastic. You might crash your site there and <laughs> get a lot of downloads. <laughs> so thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Rosie. And take care of yourself. Thank you very much. Thank you so very much, Professor Williams. This was a fantastic conversation. I learned so much and it was so great that you took the time to come here to talk to us. Dr. Williams had some book suggestions. The Vikings Reimagined Reception, Recovery, Engagement by Tom Burkett and Roderick Dale. He also mentioned an intro to archaeology of the early Middle Ages called Formative Britain by Martin Carver. And of course, I also want to add his own book, Digging into the Dark Ages, Early Medieval Public Archaeology by Howard Williams and Pauline Clark. And as was mentioned in the podcast, you can download the ebook for free. It's a wonderful book. You should absolutely go and download this book. You can catch me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at HistoryA. You can also go to the website, HistoryA.com. And if you have time to rate this podcast, I really appreciate your efforts. It helps people find me, apparently. So that's fantastic. Thank you so much. I also want to thank my husband, Jamie, and our brood of kids, our family, our friends, and the teachers that have helped me adventure through history. It would not have been possible without you. Un grand merci.